Morning, everyone. A couple of announcements I'd like to share with you. First of all, um, perfect timing for the baptisms with both Lynn and Jerry. Um, we have an opportunity uh, every week to go up to the reentry center, and some of you already have gone to the reentry center. For those of you that don't know what that is and what it's about, we go into the jails, we go into the prisons, and as a result of the, the jail ministry that we have, a number of individuals, like and unto Lynn this morning, have gone through various programs where we share the gospel and have turned to the Lord, and now are our brothers and sisters in Christ. As wonderful the blessing of that is, it's not always easy for our incarcerated brethren. The reality in the Middle Tennessee area, for a variety of reasons, is that many of our incarcerated brethren do not have a home, if you will, because many congregations, again, for a variety of reasons, feel uncomfortable having our brothers and sisters in Christ with felonies. The result is that there is a church in Nashville at the reentry center where our brothers and sisters in Christ are able to worship God together. But we have the opportunity to worship with them. Since we have one service on Sunday mornings, we have the evenings free. And so I say that to you because this evening is our group that Dan Watt and his family, our group meets together each month and we have chosen to use this evening as a time to visit with our brethren at the reentry center. But it's not limited to our group. Everyone in this congregation is welcome to go. And if you want directions, I'm sure we've already gave, given it to you a number of times, but we're happy to send another email out. But it's at the Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry, which is near the fairgrounds. I mean, just a block or so away from the fairgrounds up in Nashville. But you're welcome to join us. And the second is an impromptu. I even remembered. But my wife and I are celebrating 24 years. Officially tomorrow... But we have such wonderful children. I wish y'all had children like us. <laughs> they have sent us out on a date. So we're going to, I mean, from that time, oh, I forgot our clothes, huh? I forgot my clothes. <laughs> well, this is how we're going to go. Anyway, I'm not going to be naked. I'll be in this, these clothes. But uh, anyway, so we're going to go out and we're going to do what we do for our dates. And, and then we'll come home later tonight. So <laughs> exciting. All right. When we deal with scriptures, it is very often, particularly in the Old Testament, that we look at events in the scriptures very disconnected-like. And the whole purpose of our going through the Old Testament scriptures is for us to see this broad, this big picture. And the more and more I keep studying this big picture, the more and more the stories, the events within the scriptures seem to make more sense along, along these lines. The first few chapters of Genesis has so many different ways of which you can apply it in the New Testament, of which you'll see a lot of New Testament passages referring back to the first few chapters in the book of Genesis. And this morning is yet another one. And that's why, like, when the men met yesterday morning and we were talking about various uh, conversions and how... Um, you can keep learning God's word. Even if it's simple to know Jesus and to walk in him, you still learn a lot about God and his word and grow in many ways with him. It's like a, that never-ending well that supplies this waters of, of, 
of life. And this morning is one more application and we're going to be looking at in light of what we're talking about in the last few weeks. And we're talking about a statement in Genesis chapter 4 when God approaches Cain and says, hey, where's your brother? And his reply is, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It is so telling when we look at this story that those words do not go unheeded because by the time you get to the New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament, those words come back. If not the words themselves, the story does so that it should bring us back to this very phrase. And so we're talking about this phrase. Am I my brother's keeper? If you were to take the very first two scenes of the Bible after the creation account, the first scene is Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. And in the garden, of course, is the scene where the tempter comes and basically challenges God and says, you know, if you partake of this, do you know what's going to happen? And of course, Eve's response is, yeah, we, we shouldn't even touch it lest we die. He goes, that's not going to happen. You'll be made just like God. And of course, she gives to her husband and both of them eat. God in the passage in Genesis chapter 3 is in the garden and he says, where are you? He asks the question. Now, if we know anything about God, he is all-knowing. So for him to ask, where are you, I believe is not a matter of, well, I can't see you. Where, where can you be? Are you hiding? And of course, that's what they were doing from their standpoint, right? They were hiding. God is showing his concern for his creation. And that's what we're seeing in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, where are you? And then when you get to Genesis chapter 4, after Cain slays his brother, he says, where's your brother? Not as if he doesn't already know, but to show Cain his concern for his creation. The flip side is, when God asks where they are, you see their responses. And typically, when you look at the responses, you get to see of those who've gone astray, how they respond. Ask any child when their heart is not good, and all we have to do is look back at our own lives, when we are not right with God, and someone confronts us, how we might have that wall of defense that comes up, right? Where we might make excuses, we might justify, it might be someone else's fault, why we did what we did that's wrong, but we'll put the blame and cast the blame on someone else. We actually deflect responsibility or accountability. That's so common. These are things that tell us in these very first two scenes of the, of the Bible, again, after creation, that exemplify the contrast between God's love for us and our lack of love for him and for one another. In fact, if you look at these first two scenes, the very first one is, you know, you eat of this fruit, you'll die. And God's word teaches us, 1 John, that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. And the second one, as we're seeing, is that we need to love one another. And here is my brother, and instead of loving him, I do the very opposite. I slay him. I kill him. And for all that we can talk about from the, the details, or in fact, from the standpoint of Genesis 3 and 4, a lack of details, all you get is the big picture. 
And when we read scriptures, we get to see this contrast between the way God loves and the way we have a lack at times of loving one another. So with that in mind, I want you to ask this question. Ask it for yourself. And I want you to ask it in light of, um, for those who are here week to week, of all the sermons recently preached. The series, these loosely fit series of lessons that deal with our fellowship with one another. Am I my brother's keeper? And you see, when, I, when you ask the question, do not limit it to your brothers and sisters in Christ in this congregation. Because when we look at the rest of scriptures, and of course we're just going to look at 1 John that deals with that, that scene, if you will, from Genesis 4. You're going to see a broader context than simply my brother or sister in Christ. All right? So ask that question for yourself. Am I my brother's keeper? This phrase that was given by Cain actually manifests the kind of heart that he has or had. This phrase speaks volumes about our lack of love when, when you ask that question, am I my brother's keeper? Like, do I have responsibility over someone else's life? And from a selfish, humanistic standpoint, the answer is no. Every man for himself. I mean, technically, you're going to have your relationship with God on your own terms. But that's not what Cain meant. What Cain is really saying is, I don't have love for this person right here. And while Abel was his literal brother, it could have been anyone else. You see, Cain looked at Abel as his own enemy or as someone that was in his way because for whatever reason, whether it's jealousy or what, God did not respect that offering of Cain's while he did respect Abel's. And for whatever convoluted mindset that would justify, if I kill my brother, then maybe I get on better terms with God. <laughs> of course, we see that this just doesn't work out. But look at that mindset again. Because this is the mindset that is all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. If I asked you all this question, and I've asked it hundreds of times, it seems like it now, over the last seven years, but what is the greatest commandment in all Scripture? And everyone here already knows because we've asked it so many times, right? Love God, love your neighbor. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. Love God, love your neighbor. On these two hang the law and prophets. If you go into Galatians chapter 5, read that with me. We'll go and basically Leviticus teaches us the very same thing. Leviticus 19. We could, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We can go to a number of passages, but we'll look at Galatians chapter 5. We talk about the works of the flesh and contrast that with the fruit of the Spirit. And notice what you come up with when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. And I want you to read verse 14 with me. Scripture says here, All the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John says the same thing in 1 John chapter 3. We just had um, read for us chapter 3 verses 10 through 15. Go back to 1 John chapter 3 and notice very similarly the same thing. These are teachings all throughout Old and New Testament. 
In fact, every single law of the Old Testament, every one of them, if you want to count the 613 or give or take of the commandments, they all hang on these two right here. But 1 John chapter 3, backing up to verse 10 again, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. He's saying the same thing. Very Jewish-like phraseology. You say the same thing twice. It's a phrase, it's a phraseological rhyme, if I can even use that that way. Instead of rhyming words, you're rhyming phrases, rhyming concepts. He says, if you're not righteous or you're not loving your brother, it's one and the same, you're not of God. And then he goes on to say, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Well, those words are not explicitly taught in the book of Genesis. But the concept is right there in Genesis chapter 3, love God. In Genesis chapter 4, love your neighbor. Or in this case, love your brother. One more time, verse 11. This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. He goes on to say in verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Continuing on with the conversation, he says, but by this we know love. Because he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts, his, shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth. And shall assure our hearts before him. So we've got that concept again when, when we ask that, that question in a rhetorical fashion. Am I my brother's keeper? And the obvious answer is yes. That's how God made us. When he made us in his image, he made us to be one another's keeper. That's simple. Not difficult to understand. It may not be explicitly stated as such, word for word in Scripture, but that's exactly what the Scriptures are teaching. And so when Israel becomes a nation that belongs to God, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, he says, love one another. Love your neighbor. Deuteronomy chapter 6, remember the Shema that we talked about a few months ago in, our, in the sermon? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and, and might. That's what we're supposed to be doing, loving God, loving one another. So how does that play out then? Who is my brother? It's no different than when um, the, that rich young ruler was saying, you know, I've been doing all of these things from my youth. What more do I lack if, I, if I'm to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, listen, take all your worldly possessions since you're a wealthy man, go sell it to the poor, and then... Come follow me. Or when the next person is talking about the law and, and he's doing, he says, love your neighbor. And then he asks, well, then who's my neighbor? 
And of course, you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, how does that play out in our daily lives? You see, our need is salvation from sin, right? Every one of us in this room, everyone in the world. And we're told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, as we just read, that Jesus laid down his life for us. That's how he manifested this, quote unquote, love for his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, Jesus came into this world and actually fulfilled the need that we had because he was able to do so. That's how he exemplifies this ultimate form of loving one another. That's what we see. That's the greatest example that you can have, right? Jesus loved his enemy as his brother. We had read for us um, out of Romans, when, when uh, Jesse was giving the Lord's Supper talk, out of Romans chapter 5, that while we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And so we have that picture of, of Jesus being his brother's keeper, if you will. What about us? I went on to read after verse 16 of 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. I'm going to read it one more time. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? We have no better illustration going on in our country right now than what happened last week with Hurricane Harvey, what's happening in the fires in the northwest of our country, what's happening right now because of Hurricane Irma. We actually have visitors because of Hurricane Irma. And what is wonderful is to see so many brothers and sisters in Christ, in fact, creating Facebook pages of, okay, come stay with me. I've got a house. We've got, we got room. We've got beds. We've got a floor. We've got tents. Whatever the situation is. And I'm sure for anyone who's leaving, I, I was told... Was it six million, I was told today? Six million people from Florida exiting the largest exodus in our country's history? It's just mind-boggling. And then I'm told again, many are sleeping in their cars or their cars are running out of gas. And when I, We have homes, right? We have situations where we have brothers or sisters in Christ in need every single day, just in our own church family. And it's very easy to just assume that everyone else will take care of it, right? Very easy to do that. As our congregation continues to get larger and larger, it's like, oh, well, I know that so-and-so will take care of it. They're good about doing that. That's not how we are supposed to operate. But the flesh, the flesh is selfish. I want my own comfort. I don't want people coming in and taking up our space. Oh, strangers. These are your brethren, by the way. And it may actually, you may actually have strangers. Right? I mean, I was a stranger, literal stranger to someone that took me in their home. And now they have a brother in Christ. Literal stranger. These are things that, and all we hear is, well, if I can come up with a really good excuse like, well, that person could be a murderer. That person could steal from us. That person could harm my children. And those are very legitimate concerns. But when we shut up our hearts 
It's easy to come up with statements like that. It's very easy. It's hard to, to be the person that everyone says is naive and crazy for opening up their homes. Naive and crazy for going out and talking to people where you could get harmed. Naive and crazy to going out and sharing the gospel to people who have guns, semi-automatics, knives in a foreign country. But we're sure happy to read about them, right? We're happy to read about brethren that risk their lives to share the gospel. We're happy to read about brethren that open up their homes because I'm not the one doing it. But man, it would have been great if I was the one. But we don't have to stick our necks out when we do that. So brethren, what I'm talking about is when we're asking, who's my brother? Who'd Jesus die for? Before we were brethren, we were enemies of the cross. Every one of us. Some of us, obvious enemies. Others, less likely, as far as the picture of an enemy. But all enemies nonetheless. And Christ died for us. And so the next illustration after verse 16, verse 17 and 18, is how we ought to have love for one another when we have the ability to share what we have that had been given to us. So here's some modern applications from a variety of contexts, and I've only given three because we could always come up with many more. Think about it from a standpoint of us teaching God's word, whether it's in the pulpit like I'm doing right now, whether it's in a Bible class here at the building, or whether we're in our own homes, or if we're on the bus on some mass transit, or if we're on vacation, where's... Uh, Jimmy and Robbie already leave. There you are. Or, or you're on some vacation <laughs> and you're with all kinds of strangers. You have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. How do you do it? Do we consider the souls of those that we're speaking to from our vantage point or from their vantage point? In other words, you may easily be thinking from your vantage point that your vantage point is all good and well. Our goal is not to unnecessarily offend the very people we're trying to share the gospel with. It's, the gospel is already offensive enough. You don't have to make it worse. And sometimes, whether it's here in the pulpit, in our Bible classes, or outside of this building, we may say things that from our vantage point seems completely harmless and even with truth, but to the people we're trying to reach, it, it, there's complete disconnect. And not only a complete disconnect, it could be very offensive. It's not necessarily the gospel message, but all the extraneous that goes with the message. Got to be careful. Our goal is to not cause the one that we're trying to share the gospel with to stumble. We want them to have a nice path to Christ. Or how about, do we have a double standard of, of those who we love? So Acts chapter 6, right? There's a need among the saints in the church at Jerusalem. The need is that you have the Greek-speaking widows that are being left out. Well, the Jewish-speaking widows, they're all taken care of. Why the double standard? But it happens even in the Lord's church today. We may love this person here, but not that person there. We may say we love that person there, but our love is not being shown to that person, but it is to this person. Brethren, just go through your Rolodex of 
historical events in your life, in the life of the congregation here, in the life of congregations you've been a part of over, over your walk with the Lord, and I guarantee you at some point you'll remember a double standard. We're not perfect in the way we love one another. But we have to realize the consequences of when we have a double standard where we can show one person love but not the next person. I'll love Lynn but not Jerry, right? Because Lynn I know. Jerry, I only just met you today. That's not the way to do it. I'll love, bless his heart, Phil needs all the love he can get. Where is Phil? (laughs) See, he's not even here. I can talk about Phil not behind his back. (laughs) Love Phil not love Kim. That is a sorry form of Christianity. That double standard is something we've got to work on, brethren, as we continue to grow in Christ. Or how about doing things out of our liberty that we know we have freedom in Christ, right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you have those that will that eat meats that have been sold in the marketplace from an idol's temple. And those that believe it's wrong to eat those very same meats. The Apostle Paul said, he said, if it causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meats. Never. My love for for this soul, this precious soul who Jesus died for, right, gave up his life for, why would I, out of the fact that I can eat this meat that he thinks is wrong for me to eat, Why would I ever do something that would cause him to stumble? Yeah, but Mitch, now people are going to walk all over you. See, that's the worldly mindset of Christianity and not the Christ-like mind of Christianity. Some of us in this room may not want to hear that, but that's a fact. That's a truth. And so we have humanistic minds that would say, well, when you love this person, you let a stranger in, you're being naive, you could open up. I get it. I understand. There's a reason why faith is called faith. We trust that this body, when it dies, will have an eternal, incorruptible body, immortal body. So this is not the end game. But sometimes we behave as if it is. Brethren, we've got to reach further beyond this life to be the kind of disciples Christ desires. The kind that loves the way he loves. The kind that's willing to give up life because this body is of less value than everyone else's. And it's hard to do. I have a difficult time with it myself. I can tell when I am selfish. I'll give you an example. I'm going to be embarrassed to say this. I hope I don't cry. I'll show you a great example of love that I failed at this weekend for this service this morning. Lynn says, brother, praise God, how are you doing today? I've got an issue. I'm coming to be baptized. My girlfriend wants to be there to witness this. What can we do? I don't know, Portland's far away from here. That's like going to Kentucky. That's me. Grant, Grant, where are you? There you are. There's Grant. I asked Grant, man, you, you, you showed such a great example of love. It's just a couple hours driving here and there. What a huge, different response. If Mitch Davis was willing to just get up a few hours earlier 
could have gone up there. Lynn and Jerry, I'm sorry. That's what I'm saying. I struggle with this myself. I make up excuses. And I don't like when I do it. But I do it. And hopefully moments like this will say, you know what? Grant, you're a great example for me. Next time someone says, Mitch, can you come pick me up? I'm going to hopefully remember this day and going, it's just a couple of hours less sleep. It's all it is. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's all it is. So it's just a few extra dollars of gasoline. But boy, we get attached to our comforts, things the way we want them. So what I'm saying is, this modern application, you know, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. <clears throat> How are you going to answer it? What will it look like in your daily walk between your spouses, between you as parents and children, between you as siblings, right, children? Between us with our coworkers and our neighbors and strangers that have no place to live because they are without shelter for the next few days, possibly for the next few weeks, possibly for the next few months, if not longer. And I know as we finish off rereading for the third time this passage, I'm going to close with this one more time. Let it sink in. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I think that says enough. I want you to know, brethren, that we will continue to grow in Christ and we're going to pass these thresholds of what's a comfort zone because we move into the uncomfortable areas of our life. You've already been doing it. I mean, seven years ago, how many of us would have been sharing the gospel in jails and prisons, right? What a huge change. How many of us would have gone to our homeless neighbors to share the gospel? And look at who's doing it now today. As a result, we have brothers and sisters in Christ whose lives are so different than what you're used to. And we have a God who's smiling because you love, not in word or in, or in, in tongue, but in deed as well. And I pray that you'll continue to grow in this way. Those of you who are visiting, we're glad that you're here. Among the number that's visiting here, if you are not a child of God, we don't do just one baptism a day. We can do every bit as many as we can. <laughs> Water is actually colder. I don't know if our heater is not working, but it's all right. It's not wintertime yet. Water's not that cold, right, Jerry and Lynn? <laughs> I, I was told it was pretty cold. <laughs> but that means nothing, just that few seconds of being buried and coming up out of that watery grave to walk in newness of life is so so well worth it that's the beginning of your walk in Christ Jesus you can have that you are invited to come forward so that you can be baptized into Christ if you believe that Jesus died on the cross and is the savior of your life let alone the world if you're willing to walk with him and not according to your own counsel your own scheme of what is right and wrong but God's. Or brethren, if you need our prayers, by all means, we have an opportunity to pray with you right now. But do it right, right now. It's together we sign and sing.